0: call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 103, the first five verses. The first five verses say this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Continue standing as we sing together 10,000 Reasons.
2: Bless the Lord, my soul, Soul, worship His soul. holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, i worship Your holy name. The And draws near, and my time has come. Still, my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand.
1: as Orville comes to pray.
3: Dear Lord, we again, we thank you for this week coming. We thank you for the work that you did for us on the cross. Lord, we're all sinners in need of salvation, and the plan was in place. And even though that uh, you knew it was going to be hard, you went ahead and, and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, we just ask that you prepare our hearts for this week. May we meditate on Wednesday and fast, and then on Friday when we celebrate your death on the cross, yes, it is a celebration because it took care of our sins, and then on Sunday when you rise, you are a living God, and because of that, we we have eternal life with you. Lord, we just ask that you continue to be with us, continue to be with our country, continue to be with those that are oppressed at the moment. There are many things going on right now that we just can't understand and a lot of confusion a lot of suffering but lord you you have a plan and and you're doing what is your will so lord we just ask that you continue to be with our leaders help them to do things that are right in your mind be with pastor as he brings a message today help him to bring your word to our heart and soul and send us out to bring others to you
2: It's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down, and every chain will break as broken hearts declare. take way before the king of kings the god who comes to save is here to set the captives free who can stop the lord stop the Lord Almighty who can stop
1: standing as Pastor Chris comes to read our scripture.
0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 32 through 37. Reads this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: <clears throat> Mark chapter 13. Pastor Chris read for us the, the last few verses of chapter 13. Um, but we're going to try to go through the, the, the whole chapter uh, this morning. Um, this is a, a, uh, a passage about the end times. And the end times seems to be a topic that, that either uh, fires people up with interests uh, or it uh, kind of runs people off. Uh, there are people who, who want to want to know. They want to they try to discern this thing. They want to know what's coming next. And then there's some people who just say, can't control it anyways, so I'm just going to leave it with the Lord. right? And maybe, maybe we don't uh, think, think of it enough. Well, today there, there's no escaping it. At our church, we preach verse by verse through, through, through the book. And uh, we, are, we come to the passage, and we, we got to preach the passage. So uh, we're at chapter 13 uh, this morning. And this passage records some of Jesus' words about the end of the present age. Here in chapter 13, after a long day of confrontation, in chapter 12 is basically one day. And we took weeks and weeks in chapter 12. It's one day of of Jesus being confronted over and over again by these religious leaders and then him confronting them as well. After this long day, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. And if we're tracking with, with Mark on the, the, the timing of this, it's probably, it's, it's thought to be Wednesday night. Now, some people might dispute that, but just for the sake of, of kind of thinking through that, that's kind of where we are in the week at this point in Mark's gospel. And what follows in chapter 13 is what one commentator calls Jesus' farewell prophecy. Now, this is the last time he's going to be at the temple This is the the kind of the last thing that he says about the temple. And then we move into uh, more of the end of his life in the last few days. This is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is speaking on, wait for it, the Mount of Olives, right? Very uh, keenly titled. uh, The Olivet Discourse because of of where he was. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. And here we see Jesus foretelling of the coming destruction of the temple. So Read verses 1 and 2 with me. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So as we said, this is the last time Jesus is, is going to be at the temple. He's leaving the temple. And as they're leaving, the disciples look at the temple and say to Jesus, man, wh- look, at, look at this building. Like, this, is, this, is, this is great. These wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings. This building, we, we come to learn, was, was actually made for the Jews by Herod, by the Herod family, for the Jews. Yet the Jews were still so very, very proud of it. Here's uh, a, a, an image or a rendering um, of, this is the temple mount, right? So this is not just the temple, but this is the area uh, around the temple. And the temple was a beautiful uh, structure. It's it's, uh, a wonder of the ancient world. It covered one-sixth of the land uh, of old Jerusalem. Much of the exterior was gold-plated, and some of the stones were 24 to 40 feet long and weighed 100-plus tons, So when the disciples look at this and say, look at those stones, 24 to 40 feet long. These giant stones, uh, really kind of unbelievable if if you would see it maybe even today. But Jesus was more specifically, when he talks about the temple, he's more specifically talking about the temple itself, which was kind of the interior part of what you just saw. There's there's just a a small image of it. Though this was not Jesus' first time kind of talking about in Judging the temple, we saw him kind of run the, the tax collectors out of it back in chapter 11. Here, this prophecy would have been startling, been startling to the disciples to say, Here, here this place, this place of, of pretty significant importance uh, to the Jewish uh, faith, right, is going to be completely demolished. That's what Jesus was saying. There won't be a stone left on top of each other. And he, think again, like, we're talking about 24 foot long stones. 40 foot long stones. He's saying this is gonna be to rubble. That's That's a pretty outrageous thing to say a pretty hard-to-believe thing. So in response, the disciples inquire about this uh, destruction. In verse 3, follow along verse 3 and and 4, and he sat on, and as they sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. So they left the temple, they're on the Mount of Olives, kind of overlooking the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? So here we get four disciples. Now, a lot of times Jesus has an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. But here we have Andrew in, involved. And these are the first four disciples that were called by Jesus earlier in the gospel. So these are the four that, that come with Jesus at this point. And they want to know two things. They want to know about the timing. When, when is this going to happen? When, when would the temple be destroyed? And secondly, what would the signs be? How would we know that, that it's coming? One one writer helps us here, says, apparently the disciples associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. And if you looked at Matthew's gospel, you could see that uh, Matthew records that a little little closer together, that they they saw those two things as going together. So in reply, the the author continues, in reply, Jesus skillfully wove together uh, into a unified discourse, a prophetic scene offering two perspectives. A near event that's the destruction of the, the the temple in AD 70, and a far event the coming uh, of the Son of God in clouds with power and glory so we have a, a former or local event uh was the forerunner of the latter universal event um, th- th- this passage is is a, is a is a little difficult so there's there's multiple things going on here. But, but one of them may be that Jesus is speaking of a near event and a far event. And he did something similar in Mark 9. We won't go there this morning. So the, the disciples, they, they mistakenly thought the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, that's the, and the return of Jesus, were going to happen together. So if they knew when the destruction of the temple was, that would tell them when the coming of Jesus was. Right. That's the, that's the thinking. So Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to them. So again, we, we just want to take, take a moment just to say that this uh, is not the most clear uh, picture in in the the Bible for us to to grasp. There's there's a lot here. And good people, uh, people who've studied the Bible for much longer than I have, disagree with with some of the thoughts uh, in in this passage or or the conclusions in this passage. But As with other passages in the Bible, uh, our, our beliefs about what is to come will inform how we understand passages like these, right? So if you think certain things about the end, then that's going to inform how you read these sorts of things. That seems obvious enough. And so uh, we, we want to make sure that our beliefs about the end are based on the biblical texts, which then should um, harmonize with all of the Bible, right? This prophecy should be understood in light of the whole Bible. Ward Weersby writes that the The prophetic scriptures harmonize if we consider all that God has revealed. So the implication is that if we understand this rightly, the whole Bible should fit together. That's that's the goal. Um, We will not take time to make all those connections this morning, of course. Uh, But in light of other scriptures, uh, we can understand that Jesus is speaking about what would be referred to as the end times or the end of the present age. Uh, That will then lead to, to the... Uh, to the second coming, and we, we just want to note two, one thing here. When we say the second coming, we are not referring to uh, the rapture, okay? We, we would understand in the Scriptures that there, there are two events that are yet to come for the, for the church, the rapture of the church and then the second coming of Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom, The second coming is what is being referred to in this passage, not the rapture. The rapture will precede these events. So the events that Jesus talks about here in verses 5 and following uh, are understood to be what is called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period uh, for the purpose of judging the world, of persecuting uh, unbelieving Israel, the salvation of many, the rise of the Antichrist, and it will end with what is referred to in the book of Revelation as the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus to the earth. Uh, Prophets throughout the Old Testament refer to this time as the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of wrath, a time of indignation and punishments. So it's it's not not, not the best of times to uh, to be around, right? And so based on the scriptures, we we, we believe that the church will not be here at this time. But Jesus is speaking to them about what is to come. And so we can see this passage into, or the tribulation, into these three stages that Jesus will break it down for us. The beginning, a midpoint, um, and then the end. So first we see the beginning in verses 5 and following. So Jesus um, stated several warnings here at the beginning. And he's speaking here to the the second question about what are the signs? Okay, so the end is coming, what what are the signs? Or the destruction of this temple is coming, what is the sign? Uh, None of these things that Jesus says are are new, doesn't mean they they aren't happening now, but that they will certainly increase as the end draws near. So Jesus first cautions about false messiahs or false Christs. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 5 starts with the word see there in the ESV. Uh, You're going to see another phrase throughout this text. It says, be on guard. It's the same original word. So Jesus is saying to them, be on guard that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Jesus is offering a caution that there are those who will want to deceive people into believing that they are Jesus. You might find that incredible that people would actually do that. But that's going to be happening. It it has happened and it will continue to happen in in greater uh, ways. And and many will be led astray, in fact. They they will come and they will say, in verse 6, I am he. Or or literally, it is, I am. That's what's literally, literally being said there. I am. Which we should know that that's a designation reserved for God alone. We see that back in Exodus chapter three, when God says to Moses, I am. We see it again in John chapter eight, when Jesus uses it of himself, which gets him into some trouble. The beginning of this time will be marked by deception. So Jesus says, Be on guard. And don't think the deception isn't happening now. There is deception happening now. It will increase as the end draws near. Next, we see political conflict in verses 7 and 8. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Here, Jesus notes that there will be an increase of conflict, uh, of political or, or military conflict. But he says, do not be alarmed. Don't be frightened. Don't be troubled. Why? Look at the the middle of verse 7. This must take place. This is a a divine requirement or a divine compulsion that this has to happen. It has to happen, but it does not uh, signal the end yet, only that things are moving towards the end. This must happen. Next, we see natural disaster. The rest of verse 9, verse 8 says, there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. But these are the beginning of the birth pains or the birth pains. So natural disasters, like like earthquakes in famines, have been and are happening now. We know that. But they are not always signs of God's judgments. They're not always signs of God's judgment, but but here we're gonna see how they're leading towards it. Jesus labeled these events as birth pains or sorrows, or intolerable anguish. And so if if you've ever given birth, which I have not, because I'm a man, and and men can't do that, in case you wondered. You heard it here first, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Women Women can, men cannot. Okay. But if you ever have given birth, contractions gradually increase, typically, for the mother, until she gives birth, right? That's the point, right? They gradually get, get worse, right? <laughs> and harder. They, they gradually, so that the birth happens. Jesus is saying, like these birth pains, like, like this, these, these, these sorrows will continue to increase until the final time comes. Now, one maybe word of caution about hearing those things. We, we ought to be careful not to interpret all disaster in all war as a sign of the times. It seems that the interest in end times increases or decreases based on how things are going in our country or around the world, right? When, when things are bad, we get, it, we get a, lot, a lot of talking about, about prophecy and about end times. When things are good, kind of like, hey, I, I, I can handle this, right? This, this isn't all, all bad, right? There's a real danger um, when we interpret the Bible through our modern 21st century eyes, they might say, well, that's all I got, <laughs> right? You're right, that's all, that's all we got. So it, it's hard not to do it. But, but for instance, consider this. Consider if you were living in a third world country 100 years ago, and your third world country was experiencing famine, and your third world country was um, experiencing constant civil war. And you came to mark 13. Wouldn't you then conclude, signs of the time. It's coming. It's here now. right? That, that's what you would consider, right? That, that if, if you were only reading the Bible based on your experience, that is not how we read the Bible. That's not how we interpret the Bible. We don't interpret the Bible based on our experiences, where we live or when we live. Rather, we are to interpret the Bible based on what it meant when it was written to the original reader. What was the author's intent? Who was the author talking to? What was he talking about? Too often, we read ourselves into the Bible instead of understanding the meaning out of the Bible. They're two very, very different things, things we ought to be cautious about, especially when it comes to understanding the end times. Jesus is speaking about a coming time of disaster. It's absolutely true. This is the tribulation that that leads ultimately to his return and his kingdom being established. So would it be wrong to say that wars today could be the beginning of birth pains that will be experienced in the tribulation? No, it's not wrong to say that, but to declare that these are the, the, the same signs of the times that Jesus is talking about in, in Mark 13 would be a little um, presumptuous because we've always had wars, right? We've always had famines, so we ought to be careful about how authoritatively we come to such conclusions. That said, Jesus gives more than just these warnings. In verse 9, he gives some personal warning. Be on your guard, and then he tells us several things that will happen. You'll be delivered over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to, to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a terrible time. I mean, this is a terrible picture of, of both conflict and opposition from authorities and from families. That, that con- conflict from without and from within. And if we might understand the authority thing We don't understand how the government could come after Christians, but but now families are are against one another? Well, Jesus said something actually similar to this back in chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. We won't go there right now, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 38, he said something very similar to this uh, anyways to the disciples. Here's what we know. The gospel is a stumbling block. It is offensive. It tells people that they are at odds with God And it's not God who needs to change, but but it's that we need to change. That we have a problem and we can't fix it on our own, but God has through his son. This is not a popular message. And it is, it it causes conflicts. But Jesus said that the gospel must first be proclaimed. Again, another divine necessity. It must be proclaimed. Why? For the sake of Jesus' name. All of this is for the sake of Jesus' name. Opposition and persecution will be used by God for the sake of his name and for his glory. You see, in spite of persecution, or we could say because of persecution, the gospel actually is spread to the nations. We see this in the book of Acts. We're seeing it even now in certain places in the world. It was the early church father, Tertullian, in In the the second century, who said this to his persecutors? He said, "This we multiply when you mow, when we are mowed down by you. About Christians multiply when we die." He went on to say, "The blood of Christians is the seed of the church." Who talks like that? No movement talks like that. No religion talks like that. And yet, that's exactly what happens. It's exactly how God works. That even in persecution, the gospel spreads. God's plan is for the gospel to be proclaimed. His plan for gospel proclamation is the responsibility of you and me. In persecution or not. Now we may wonder, will we actually have the courage to say anything? (laughs) Right? I mean, you hear some of these stories, you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know, I might recant. Like, goodness, if, if they threaten my life or they threaten my family, am I going to be able to stand up to that? What does Jesus say to these people? He says the same thing, again, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Don't worry about what to say. That God will give you what to say in the hour. That in the moment, God, the Spirit of God will tell you what to say. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story about a young girl who lived during the 1600s in the time of the Covenanters in Scotland. It's a time I was not aware of until this. But it was uh, worship, uh, community services were, were outlawed in the Presbyterian uh, church by by the king. And so she went to attend a service in the afternoon. And he writes this, the the soldiers of the, the king of England were looking everywhere for people who were going to meet together to partake in this communion service. And as this girl turned a corner on her way, she came face to face with a band of soldiers. And she knew that she was trapped. For a moment, she wondered what was she going to say. But immediately on being questioned, she found herself answering. She said this, my elder brother has died and they are going to read his will this afternoon and he has something for me and has left something for me and I want to hear them read the will. And they allowed her to go on. What did she mean? Martin Lloyd-Jones continues, her elder brother had died. Christ had died for her. And in the communion service, the will was going to be read again. And she was going to be reminded of what she had, what he had left her to do. Could she have thought that up before? <laughs> no, she couldn't have thought that up. But it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. God gave her what to say. The Holy Spirit provided the words for her. We are not to worry about that. We are to be faithful to speak what God tells us. When Jesus then moved to the midpoint of the tribulation in verse 14 where he spoke about an event called the abomination of desolation. Look at it in verse 14. And when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the, the abomination of des- desolation comes from the book of Daniel. You see it several times in the book of Daniel. This event is the desecration of the temple. It's, it's pagan idolatry in the temple. It's desecrating the temple. It would not be the first time that this had happened. It happened in 167 BC with the king of Syria. Uh, Then it happened again in AD 70 as the temple was defiled by Rome when it was destroyed. But Daniel's prophecy was not about either of these things. It was about a final abomination in the temple by the Antichrist. We see that in Revelation chapter 13 verse 14. One commentator says this, he, speaking about the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the Jewish people at the beginning of a 70-year period preceding the, 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 uh, Christ's coming. We call that the tribulation. The temple will be rebuilt and worship uh, will be established. In the middle of that period, and this is the period that Jesus is talking about here, this midpoint, the Antichrist will break the covenant, stop temple sacrifices, desecrate the temple, and proclaim himself to be God. This launches the terrible end-time events called the Great Tribulation. And those who refuse to to be identified with uh, the Antichrist will suffer severe persecution and be forced to flee for refuge. Many, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved during this period, Revelation chapter 7, but many will also be martyred, Revelation chapter 6. So Jesus is saying here, at this point... This is going to happen to the temple, this, this desecration of the temple. And Jesus expresses the seriousness of it at the end of verse 14 when he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If this isn't going to be good. He continues in verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop go down and enter his house and take nothing out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back or take his cloak. Alas, the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. And in those days, there will be a tribulation as has not been for the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human would have been saved, would be saved. And, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the, 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 the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For the false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. We want to be clear. This passage is not describing the rapture of the church. This is describing the judgment on the world during the tribulation. This will be a terrifying time. And yet we see God sovereign over it. So sovereign, in fact, that he cuts the days short. And listen, if God is sovereign over that time, if he's sovereign over that tribulation then you and I can know something else. He's sovereign over our tribulation, right? He's sovereign over your adversity and your hardship. If he, if he can control the days of the tribulation yet to come, he can control your days as well. We seem to be okay with believing that, that God can create the whole world out of nothing, that he controls the end times, that, that he, and yet we are, we are prone to doubt and question his control in our life today. We're, we're all there, aren't we? We're, we're okay with what he's done to say, yeah, God was at work there. And yeah, God will be at work there. But right now, not so sure. Why, why would we doubt such, such a thing when we see it all around us so clearly? The scriptures is so clear, are so clear that he is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is all powerful, all knowing, and he's everywhere present. He is the one in whom, Christ is the one in whom the whole world is held together, Colossians 1. We can trust him. It is mercy, in his grace here, he shortened this period or he cut short the days. What does that mean? It means that the second half of this tribulation period, he cut to three and a half years as opposed to letting it go on. And he did it for the sake of the elect. If not, no one would have survived. There'd be no survivors in the, in the tribulation. Everyone would have died. Who are the elect? They're true believers. They're Jews and Gentiles who will come to Christ in the tribulation. Revelation chapter 7 Verse 23 ends with this repeated imperative, be on guard, take heed, keep uh, or be alert. Remember what God has said. All of this, all of these events lead up to the second coming of Christ, the end of the present age, which is what he describes next in verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the power in heaven will be shaken. And then, just let me stop for a second. Sometimes people uh, see these signs and tell you that the signs now are telling us about the coming of Jesus. These events are happening after the tribulation. So people talking to you about blood moons, whatever, this is stuff happening after the tribulation, not before. These, these things are, are yet to come. Verse 26, and then, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the, from the ends of the earth, the ends of the heaven. When, when Jesus comes back, he is coming back literally. Right? We will see him. They will see him. That's what it's saying here. He will be visible, which means he's coming personally and literally and bodily, visibly in the clouds, in the clouds. That that, that cloud language or image is is signifying God's presence. And he will come with great power and great glory, which corresponds with Daniel chapter seven. And as he comes, he will gather his people. He'll gather the the elect. Well, who are the elect? These These are Gentiles and Jews who have come to Christ. Who believe that Jesus is the Messiah during the final tribulation period. And he will gather them where? From the four winds. What's the four winds mean? Every direction. Everywhere. All over. God. Jesus is going to bring them all together. Might say, Man, that sounds like a pretty, pretty amazing event. Where are we going to be? You know where we're going to be? According to Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, we believe that we're going to be with the the armies of heaven who come with Jesus at the end of the age. We come with Jesus as he collects the elect, as all these believers come together to take part in the kingdom which Jesus will establish on the earth. One of the dangers with end times prophecy is an unhealthy fixation on when and how Jesus will come to the neglect of our responsibility now. Some of us want to get out of here so badly. Right? When's he coming? To the neglect of the fact that we have a, we have something to do now. So Jesus closes the discourse with two lessons or two parables. In the remaining verses, we see them. The first is in response, again, to the second question about signs. And he gives this, this parable about a fig tree. Look at verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. Now, he's used fig tree before. And fig tree is a symbol of Israel. But, but here, he's just talking about the tree as a tree. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. So also, when these things take place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying, just like the fig tree who puts out its branch and, and the leaf appears, when that happens, you'll know it's summer. right? In that same way, similarly, when these things what are the, these things? They're the previous verses, verses 5 through 23. When these things take place, the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus is near. Jesus was describing the signs of the end of the present age in verses 5 through 23. The second lesson comes, uh, answers the, the first question, when? Okay, so what are the signs? The first question, though, was when is it going to happen? What does Jesus say to that? He's going to tell another parable, but the first thing he says is verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus, when's it going to happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows. They say, well, isn't Jesus God? Yes, he's God. How does he not know? Jesus willfully, voluntarily, self-imposed a limitation of his knowledge while on earth. We see it in Acts chapter 1 verse 7 as well. How this day, the, 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 the day, or that day, may be referring to the second coming or the events including the tribulation leading up to the second coming. Nevertheless, no one knows when that day will come. That's what Jesus is saying. No, no one knows. And so he goes on then to, to tell them something. He doesn't want to leave them there. He doesn't leave them just the, well, good luck. No, he goes on to tell them um, about how they should live. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he offers this parable. What one writer calls this parable the parable of the householder. He makes this point, uh, to make his point. Verse 35, 34. It is like, okay, so we're, we're talking about a parable. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So here's the picture. The, the, the man is, is, is Jesus. Right? And he's going on a journey. He's leaving. And he's going to come again. But until he comes again, he puts the servants in charge, each with work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster cries, or in the morning. And that is a a time, time, a way of marking time in the Roman calendar, right? That's six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to three, three to six. That's what those four designations are. Lest, verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, Jesus has, has left, he has left his servants, the doorkeepers with responsibility to be attentive in particular ways, to particular ways. And for, they, they serve as application for you and me as well. The first is that he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, his work. Jesus is not content to say to the disciples, yeah, just hang out here on the Mount of Olives and I'll be back in a bit because right? that's where Jesus is going to come back to, the Mount of Olives. Like, just, just hang out, just take it easy, keep watching for me, try to figure out the dates. No, no, he, he wasn't content with them just sitting there. Instead, like the man who left the servants in charge to do work, he too wants his servants to be active in the work that he would leave them. By application, we can say we are to be active in the work that God has given to us. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. We see that all throughout the New Testament. What are some of those things? We can make a list for, for days, right? But what are some of those things? We've looked at some of those in Mark's very gospel. Jesus came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor. We're called to make disciples. We are called to use our gifts for the glory of God. So I ask you this, what, what is the work that you are called to? As a Christian, specifically you though, what are you called to this week in light of the coming of Christ? Would you want to be found doing anything else? And how many of us can admit there have been times where we're doing the wrong things and God forbid that Jesus should come while we're doing that, right? So let's not. Let's be about the work that Jesus has set for us and secondly, he says to stay awake, or some of your Bibles say to watch. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The end of verse thirty-four, or to be alert. Now, now, staying awake is in contrast to verse thirty-six, being found asleep. We're not talking about literal sleep. Talking about literally being awake. Some of you would be in, in violation of that this morning. But so, what, what we're talking about here is a, a spiritual neglect. Being found asleep is being spiritually neglectful, not doing what God has told you to do, not doing what God's called us to do. To watch is to be obedient to the God-given tasks and commands left for us as we await the sudden return of Jesus. Ward Weersby writes this, our task is to be faithful and to be busy, not to speculate and debate about the hidden details of prophecy. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing what's going to happen. What the Bible says is going to happen, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to study prophecy, good. It's in the Bible, you should, you should. But that should lead us to vigilantly working, (laughs) diligently working. Let's use a different word. Diligently working and watching, yes, but not speculating or debating. So are you staying awake? Two days later, in the timeline of the scriptures, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives again. And he's there with only three of his disciples this time, Peter, James, and John. And they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this? And Jesus calls them, and he says, come pray with me. He actually says this, if you want to just flip over in your your Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, to to, uh, chapter 14, verse 38, or page 851. Chapter 14, verse 38, he says this to them, watch and pray. Pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now some of your Bibles actually say here in Mark 13, watch and pray. They're not the same thing, to watch and to pray, but they're closely tied. Gives us some indication of what Jesus might mean when he's saying this idea of watching and praying, of being on guard. The question for us this morning is, will we hear the words of Jesus to stay awake? Will you hear that? We hear his, his imperative to be on guard, to remain alert. Will you be about the work of Jesus this week? In order that you might be found faithful. First John chapter 2, verse 9 says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when we when, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. How can we do this, right? How can we work and watch like this by looking to Jesus? Jesus is, in fact, our hope in life and in death. He is the one through whom we are enabled to do just this. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is in response to what Jesus has done that we work and we watch until his coming. Why would we do this? Because of what Christ has done for us. The better question is, why would we do anything else? The Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation says, Come, Lord Jesus, an anthem that many of us have maybe repeated. But maybe you're not very comfortable repeating that. Maybe you're not quite sure if you want Jesus to return. Maybe you're not sure how he would find you. Maybe you're unsure of, of whether or not you would be welcomed in. But the Scriptures assure us that you can be welcomed in. First John chapter 5, verses 11-13 through 13 say this, and This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. In this life is in his son, Jesus. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the great, the great hope for the Christian is that we belong to God through Christ. If you do not have Christ, you do not have life. You might say, well, I believe in God. That's not good enough. The question is not do you believe in God. The question is, is, do you know Christ? The question is, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? That's the question. There's lots of people who run around and say, Lord, Lord. But Jesus tells us what will happen. In Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But I'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, they were not about the Father's work. They're about their own work. Our hope today is in the work of Jesus. His coming, and he is coming, will come unexpectedly, both his rapture and his second coming. And We ask you, are you awake? Are you ready? You can be. You can be. If you don't know Christ this morning, we invite you to come to him, to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. If you do, if you do know Christ, their invitation to you is to be found worthy, to be found faithful, to be busy about the work of God this week. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us this week to be found faithful? As we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we can't do it on our own, this isn't try harder, this is look to, to Christ. This is to lead into your son and his work. And through the empowerment of your spirit who lives in the Christian, we can. Father, for those with us this morning who don't know you, they don't know your son. They don't have confidence about the coming of your son. Maybe even right now, all this conversation even makes them anxious. God, would you impress upon their hearts, their minds, the hope that they can have, the hope that's available through Jesus, the hope that Jesus came to bring to all who would repent and believe. The forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, our relationship with you as Father, for all who would repent and believe. Repent of their sin and believe on Jesus as Savior pray that they would do that this morning. We pray that even now that we all together would we'll turn our eyes to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.
2: glory and our prize, we adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true, oh Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. our savior ever true oh jesus we turn our eyes to you jesus to you we lift our eyes jesus our glory and our prize we adore you behold you our savior
1: benediction comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14. Now as we go from here, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all until the day of Christ's return. Amen and amen.